Welcome to St. James. Very, very glad that you guys are here. Uh, welcome to everybody who's uh, watching the live stream as well. We're glad that you're with us. Trying to do this, uh, the notices as quick as I can. Uh, not, no youth confirmation today. Uh, no evening prayer tonight because of the uh, one-day VBS fun day, which is today. Uh, Jen Weber told me to make sure I talk that up. You guys have to stay and you have to come down because there's tons of good food. The Stokowski smoked meat, which you know that that's, uh, that's really, really good. Eric Robinson is doing something else too. There's lots of fun things going on. So please stay after the service today if you can and join us. It's not for kids. It's not just for kids too. I was told to tell you that uh, the meal is for all of us and uh, everybody's welcome to hang out. So please stay afterwards for that. 
Uh, you can look at the other stuff here. Check out that micro school aid um, notice there. If anybody's interested in doing that, it's a really, really cool concept. There's some brochures uh, back here about the micro school. Uh, lots of interesting things. Talk to Will Van. Will has got this uh, VR thing set up where you can explore the British Museum. So you just can't do that like, uh, like sitting at home. So talk to Will. He's got a lot of cool things uh, working there. Uh, yoga Thursday. Uh, one thing you do, do need to make note of, uh, the Zoom Bible study on Wednesday nights, a screw tape letter study. We're not doing it this week. I'm going to be out of town. So we'll uh, skip this week and then we'll be back at it next week. Uh, youth group, men's Bible study at both on Tuesday. Uh, women's Bible study Saturday morning. New members classes on for July 25th. It's going to be uh, 6.30 to 8 in the evening. Um, let me know if you want to be involved. It's a really good time. We just sit around and talk about the Bible and uh, eat donuts and that sort of thing. So let me know if you want to participate in that. Um, also, um, one other quick announcement if I can, then I'll be done. I, I don't know how many of you know uh, Joe Early. He was one of the founding members of this church. He actually helped build this church. Um, uh, Joe moved out east with his wife uh, about a year ago uh, when COVID hit to be next to his kids. Joe passed away about three months ago. His family's coming into town to do a memorial service on the 24th. Some of you know him who've been here a long time. To do a memorial service on the 24th. Um, if you would be willing to help serve food, we don't have to make food for that. They're providing the food. Uh, but if you'd be willing to make a dessert and then help serve the food at the, you said that's wrong? Just desserts. All right. If you can make desserts and then help serve at the end of that, anybody who's willing to do that, can you talk to Angela, my wife? And that's in a couple weeks. And it'd be a great way to honor Joe, who most of you don't know Joe, but you're sitting in a building uh, that he helped build and you're like participating in a, a body life that he helped shape and form for a long time. Super great guy, super interesting guy, World War II POW, fascinating. His family will have good stories for you. So, um, there's that. I think that's it in, as far as notices are concerned, I believe. Am I missing anything? All right, let's stand and pray, and then we'll continue in worship. Father, we need you this morning. We cannot be what you want us to be without you. We want to be better reflectors of your image. We want to be more faithful to your mission. We want to be uh, better lovers of you. We want to be better lovers of each other. We want to be uh, people of righteousness and justice we want that, God, but we just can't do it. We can't pull it off. We need you to come and be with us this morning and give yourself to us. We need you to transform our uh, brains and to shape our hearts to look more like you. And so we're praying in the name of your son, Jesus, that you would come here and communicate yourself to us this morning by the power of your word and by your sacraments. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's continue in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Lord, have mercy upon us. Christ, have mercy upon us. Lord, have mercy upon us. I confess to God Almighty before the whole company of heaven and to you, my brothers and sisters, that I have sinned in thought, word, and deed by my fault, by my own fault, by my own most grievous fault. Wherefore, I pray God Almighty to have mercy on me. Forgive me all my sins and bring me to everlasting life. Amen. The Almighty... I confess to God Almighty before the whole company of heaven and to you, my brothers and sisters, that I have sinned in thought, word, and deed by my fault, by my own fault, by my own most grievous fault. 
Wherefore, I pray, God Almighty, to have mercy on me, forgive me all my sins, and bring me to everlasting life. Amen. The Almighty and merciful Lord grant you pardon, forgiveness, and remission of all your sins. Amen. Please stay standing for the opening hymn. Church, arise and put your armor on. Hear the call of Christ our captain. For now the weak can say that they are strong in the strength that God has given. We shield our faith and belt of truth. We'll stand against the
psalmist from Psalm 143. For your name's sake, O Lord, preserve my life. In your righteousness, bring my soul out of trouble. Hear my prayer, O Lord. Give ear to my pleas for mercy. In your faithfulness, answer me. In your righteousness, enter not into judgment with your servant. For no one living is righteous before you. Let me hear in the morning of your steadfast love. For in you I trust. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen. You may be seated. The Old Testament reading for this morning is from Amos chapter 7. There's a couple strange things about that I want to point out to you. First of all, uh, Amos is going to have a vision at the beginning of a plumb line, of uh, you know, a surveyor's tool. And what the vision is about is that God is creating this sort of reverse construction. He's going to destroy Samaria, and it's this vision of Amos sees God like planning it out. The second thing I want to point out to you, Amos was a prophet in, the, in Israel, the northern tribes. Um, Israel was supposed to worship in Jerusalem, but Jerusalem was in Judah, the southern tribe, and so they didn't. They created alternative worship centers in Samaria and in Dan, which God said don't do. Amos comes along and tells the people of Israel, don't worship up there, you need to go down to Jerusalem. And so um, that's going to be sort of the, there's, there's somebody who's going to come along and say, hey, you're, you know, this is rebellion against the king of Israel, and so you need to repent. And uh, actually, he tells him he needs to leave town, but that's what's going on here. This is what the Lord God showed me, Amos says. Behold, the Lord was standing beside a wall built with a plumb line, with a plumb line in his hand. And the Lord said to me, Amos, what do you see? And I said, a plumb line. And then the Lord said, Behold, I'm setting a plumb line in the midst of my people Israel. I will never again pass by them. The high places of Isaac shall be made desolate, and the sanctuaries of Israel shall be laid waste. And I will rise against the house of Jeroboam with the sword. Then Amaziah, the priest of Bethel, sent to Jeroboam, king of Israel, saying, Amos has conspired against you in the midst of the house of Israel. The land's not able to bear all his words. For thus Amos has said, Jeroboam shall die by the sword, and Israel must go into exile away from his land. And then Amaziah said to Amos, O seer, go, flee away to the land of Judah and eat bread there. Prophesy there, but never again prophesy at Bethel, for it's the king's sanctuary, and it's a temple of the kingdom. Then Amos answered and said to Amaziah, I was no prophet, nor a prophet's son. I was a herdsman and a dresser of sycamore figs. But the Lord took me from following the flock, and the Lord said to me, Go, prophesy to my people Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The epistle reading is from Ephesians 1, verses 3 through 14. Can I point out something to you? The beginning of verse 6, see that line, to the praise of his glorious grace? It's echoed at the end of verse 11, to the praise of his glory. And it's echoed again at the end of uh, verse 13, again, to the praise of his glory. The first part marks where uh, Paul's talking about God the Father. And then he hits this to the praise of his glory. Then he talks about God the Son, and he's to the praise of his glory. And then he talks about God the Spirit, and then says to the praise of his glory. So those three lines in there break this up into its Trinitarian sections. Paul says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as he, God the Father, chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, 
to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he's blessed us in the beloved. Now he's going to talk about Jesus. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us, in all wisdom and insight making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In Jesus we've obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Now on to the Holy Spirit. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. If Molly Fry and her family and godparents could come forward now. So Molly's going to be baptized this morning. And I always like to say a few words about why we're uh, about to do what we're about to do. So God's, God has this plan to rescue his creation, which is broken and has fallen away from him. And the way he joins us to that story is through faith. Uh, by grace you are saved through faith. The way that God creates faith is through his word. Romans 10, 17 says that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And there's several different ways that God gives his word to us. One, of course, is uh, you know, written in his word. And when we preach it, and uh, Jared and Annie are teaching Molly God's word. Another way God gives us his word is in the sacraments. Ephesians 5, Paul says that Christ washes his bride with the water of the word. He sanctifies her by washing her with the water of the word. What's happening in baptism is that God's word is joined with water. So water is not doing this to Molly. It's God's word in the water. We call that baptism. And God's word creates faith. And so as um, Molly gets baptized this morning and as Jared and Annie and uh, grandparents and family and godparents continue to teach her the word and pray for her, God's giving her the word in all these different ways. And when she grows up and she starts to come to the table and receive God's word in bread and wine form, God's going to be shaping and transforming her into the lady that he wants her to be. And so that's what we're doing this morning. God has called Molly by name, and she belongs to him, and now he's going to put his word into her and on her. And so Molly and Marie Fry, receive the sign of the cross upon your forehead and upon your heart, marking you as a child redeemed by Christ the crucified and risen. So this isn't just an individualistic thing too. Now we're not like, okay, Molly's a Christian. There she goes. Jared and Annie are all bought in and committed to training her and teaching her and loving her. But we as a church too, God has called us to be a community, a body of Christ. And so all of us this morning are committing to this responsibility of loving for Molly and praying for Molly, teaching her word, teaching her God's word, especially in the way that we live and set an example of love and self-sacrifice and justice and mercy. So we're all involved in this this morning. The godparents are going to speak for us right now by answering some of these questions. So I ask you, parents and godparents, do you renounce the devil in all his works and all his ways? If so, say yes. And do you believe in the God who's revealed to us in Scripture and whom we confess in the Apostles' Creed? If so, and if the congregation could stand with me now, you can find the Apostles' Creed in your hymn book, and if you could confess it with us now. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, 
was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day He rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence He will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. You guys may be seated. Parents and godparents, in light of Jesus' command not just to baptize, but also to teach everything He commanded, do you promise to bring Molly to worship with the gathering of God's people, teach her the commandments and the promises of the Gospel, and pray for her spiritual growth? If so, say yes. May God help you to do this important work so that Molly will be faithfully brought up in the arms of Jesus. Molly Marie Fry, I baptize you, my sister, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. May God, who has caused you to be born again of water and of the Spirit, and has forgiven all your sins, strengthen you with His grace unto life everlasting. Amen. And now, it's kind of a tradition around here, I'm going to steal Molly. Let's sing Jesus Loves Me. I'm going to bring her around and introduce you to her. You're going out and you're coming in from this time forth and even forevermore. Amen. You guys may be seated. We have another uh, new tradition here. Um, every time.
baptized before with Charlie and Jensen and Evelyn and now Molly. Chuck and Debbie have, have sung Jesus Paid It All. So we're going to forego the sermon hymn this morning. And Chuck and Debbie are going to sing Jesus Paid It All for us. stand for the gospel reading. That's such a great baptism hymn. I've never thought of that as like a baptism hymn before. That's such a terrific baptism hymn. The Holy Gospel according to St. Mark chapter 6. Mark's going to call Herod King Herod here. He's not really a king. Caesar's the king. His father was a client king. Augustus Caesar let 
Herod the Great, who you know from the Christmas stories, be called king. Antipas, his son, was refused the title. Why is Mark calling him that? We'll get to it in just a few minutes. King Herod heard of it. He heard what we had talked about last week, that Jesus' disciples on mission. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. And some said John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That's why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said he's Elijah. There was a prophecy, Old Testament prophecy, that Elijah would return. And others said he's a prophet like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who'd sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he'd married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death. But she couldn't because Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man. And he kept him safe. And when Herod heard John the Baptist, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guest. And the king said to the girl, ask me for whatever you wish and I'll give it to you. And he vowed to her, whatever you ask me, I'll give you up to half my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, for what should I ask? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. This is the gospel of the Lord. You may be seated. That's a weird thing to say at the end of that reading. This is the gospel of the Lord. So first of all, Jesus is hardly in here. He's actually not a character in the story. He's mentioned at the beginning. John the Baptist isn't even really a character. I mean, I know he gets his head chopped off. And he had the line in the beginning about, you know, you shouldn't marry your sister or your, yeah, your sister-in-law. But really, the, the, the main characters are Herod and his wife and his daughter and then at this party. So how is this, how is this gospel? Where's the gospel in this text? Well, let's get to that in just a few minutes. Before we do, in order to do that, I want to point out to you that this text is a typical story in the Bible. There's, it's a theme throughout the Bible that the political system is not on the side of righteousness in the kingdom of God. And you can go all the way back to Pharaoh, where you have, you know, Pharaoh wants to be, in some sense, he believes himself to be, in some sense, divine. He wants to be the king. He wants to be in charge of everything. And uh, in order to do that, he has to act idolatrously. More on that in just a second. You can talk about, like, the different kings that are interacting with the people of Israel in the book of Judges. You talk about Sennacherib, the Neo-Assyrian king in the 8th century. You can talk about Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian king in the 6th century. What do these guys all have in common? You talk about Caesar, who is the shadow that looms over Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. What do these guys all have in common? In some sense, they believe themselves to be in charge of everybody. And the way that works out for God's people is constant squashing. This story fits right in, right in there with that. Herod is actually a lackey of Caesar's. He's not really, doesn't really have a whole lot of his own power. He works for Caesar. 
but he's Caesar's representative in Galilee. And innocent guy, John the Baptist, is going to get stomped out here. This is a story that fits right. You mean you go into um, um, go into the book of Revelation, where you have uh, in the, the you have the three beasts coming up out of the sea, and uh, they hold like they hold power and sway over the entire world, and they're trying to crush uh, the baby uh, who represents Christ in that story and his people, you know. And uh, one of them has one of them has complete and absolute political power. One of them has complete and absolute economic power. Nobody can buy or sell without his permission. And then one, uh, which Revelation calls the, the great whore, is devoted to like uh, sexual liberty. And so th- this is the way this story works out. Is you're going to see these three things, these three idols here in this story as well. All these, all these rulers, all these political systems, all these kings and queens, uh, presidents, prime ministers, they all have two things in common. One is that um, a, a hatred for God, and, and when I don't say, like, I don't mean like necessarily like emotional anger. I just mean a disdain for God. Um, they themselves, Caesar called himself the son of God, uh, uh, Nebuchadnezzar, uh, Sennacherib, Pharaoh, all believe themselves to be in some sense divine. They don't need any sort of outside God getting into their business. This is the way political systems always work. They always posture as Messiah. They always posture as God. If you vote for me, I can, make your, I can fix your life. I can make your life better. And there's really, in that in that. In that scenario, there's really no room for God in that, in that scenario. I mean, you could, sometimes in some systems, God will be co-opted if you need his support, you know, like God's on our side and that sort of thing. But really, there's no sort of need for God. Instead, so disdain for God. And then the second thing is, instead, being fueled by the three great idols of the human race going back to the beginning. We, now, we, all of us, we struggle with like things that we worship, things that we put in the center of our lives, things that give our lives meaning that aren't the creator God. There's three big ones, though, that all of our, all of our favorite idols sort of like filter down into. Tim Keller's written this fantastic book called Counterfeit Gods, and the, the um, subtitle is The Empty Promises of Money, Sex, and Power and the Only Hope That Matters. Money, sex, and power are basically the three idols that all of our idols sort of filter down to. And what makes money, sex, and power so dangerous is that they're so awesome. Like God gave us money, sex, and power as these, like these wonderful gifts to serve each other and to enjoy. And what we do, though, is we twist them, we make them the center, and then we try to use them to serve ourselves and to manipulate others. It's classic idolatry definition. Money, sex, and power. And you see those three things worked out in this story. Herod, these are what fuels his identity as ruler of Galilee. Money, sex, and power. So first of all, money. Look at verse 21. An opportunity came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. So first of all, nobody celebrated birthdays in the ancient world. I know that sounds kind of weird to us now, but you just didn't celebrate your birthday. The only people that we know in the ancient world at this time in the first century who celebrated their birthdays regularly were the Caesars. And it was like this empire-wide celebration. And it was less like, you know, you know, best wishes and many happy returns. It was less about that than more like the day that you were born. I'm quoting the Priene inscription right now from Greece. The day that Caesar Augustus was, be- was born was the beginning of the gospel for the Roman Empire. That's not a Christian who wrote that. That's a, a pagan who wrote that. So every day when he's born, you remember like our Savior. That's a, that's a Caesar word. Our bringer of pox. That's a Caesar word. Is here. It's Caesar Augustus. It looks like Herod is aping that. 
trying to borrow a little of that cachet. Well, Caesar celebrates his birthday. Maybe I'll celebrate his birthday too. And he's having this incredible uh, a party. We don't, Matthew, Mark, Luke don't tell us where this party happened. Josephus does though. Josephus, the Jewish historian, not a Christian, but very, very interested in Jewish history. Friends with um, Herod Antipas' nephew, Agrippa II, got, got the, the firsthand skin. He tells us it was in a castle called Machaerus. It was on the east side of the Dead Sea. Hugely lavish, Josephus tells us. Herod has spent a ton of money to throw this party, to bring all of the movers and shakers in Galilee into one place so that he can consolidate power. It's costing a lot of taxpayer money to do this. And for the Jews, nobody really cares for taxes. I mean, we all, we're all supposed to pay them, right? But nobody likes paying taxes. For the Jews in the first century, it was, either, either, it was even another dose of distasteful. Because every time you had to pay a tax to the Roman Empire, it was a sign that your king was Caesar and not the one true God. And this tax money, Herod is using it to throw lavish parties to consolidate his power. Money gives us power. Everybody knows that. Herod knows it. We all sense it. It's so tempting for money to be in that middle. And here it is in the political scene 2,000 years ago. Money's right in the middle. It's being worshipped. Sex also, verses 17 through 19. Sex is what got um, John the Baptist on Herod's case in the first place. Herod had thrown John in prison in verse 17 for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. Because he'd married her, John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. You should not marry your sister-in-law. For Herod feared John, but Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to, wanted to put him to death. Twisted story here. You're going to like, pay super close attention. Uh, the family tree of the Herods was kind of messed up. So there's the big Herod, the one from you know, the Christmas stories from Luke 2, Herod the Great. He dies pretty soon after Jesus is born. A couple years after Jesus is born, he dies. He has 10 sons. Some of them are smart. Some of them are dumb. He kills the smart ones because they're a threat to his reign. I'm not making that up. He lets the dumb ones live. He has a son, a smart son named Aristobulus, who is a brother of um, Antipas. Our Herod in this text is named, that, the Herod that you know from the gospel stories and the trial of Jesus, it's the Herod called Antipas. He has a brother named Aristobulus. Aristobulus married, Aristobulus has a daughter named um, Herodias. Aristobulus's brother, Philip, falls in love with his niece, Herodias, and marries her. Later, later on, Antipas, our guy here, sees her. Sees, this is his niece, so it's his biological niece, and it's his brother's, his half-brother's wife. He sees her. He wants, he wants to have sex with her. He comes on to her, and she says, I'm not sleeping with you unless you divorce your wife and marry me, and then I'll divorce your brother, Philip, my husband. That's how they get together. It's a classic boy-meet-girl story. So that, that's, that's how they get together. They basically get together because Herod wants to sleep with this woman and he's got the power to pull it off. He thinks. More on how that turns out later. That's not the only thing. Uh, that's not the only way that sex is used manipulative, manipulatively for power in this story. Go down to verse 21. An opportunity came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guest. And the king said to the girl, ask me for whatever you wish and I'll give it to you. And he vowed to her, whatever you want, I'll give it to you up to half my kingdom. So first of all, Josephus knows this story. Josephus tells us this is not the way things were done. Even in the Roman Empire, whose sexual mores were way more loose than even our cultures today, proper single women, proper married women, 
almost every dinner party was going to be stag. And then the women would go somewhere else. And they did not mix. So in the story of Esther, um, this, is what gets, this, is what starts, this is what kicks off the, the story of Esther too. She goes in there and she pleases. And the word that's used here, especially in, in Matthew and Luke, is a word that, that has the flavor of like sexually pleasing. This young girl, she's not married. Her, 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 the, the word that's used here, it's a, a woman below marriageable age. She goes in there and dances for her stepfather and turns him on. And he says, holy cow, I'll give you whatever you want. Like sex is the coin with which these people buy and sell each other. This is using sex as manipulation. This is the way idols work. You stick them at the center of your life, and before you know it, you're their pawn. It's the way idols always work. They chew you up and they spit you out. Finally, power. Verse 27 and 28. Actually, let me look at verse 26. Um, Salome, this is the girl's name, comes, says, I want John the Baptist's head cut off. And Herod, or verse 26, the king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths and his guest, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders and they killed John. So, okay, so he, he doesn't want to kill John. He knows it's not the right thing to do. He kind of likes John. He's scared of John, but he kind of likes John too. But this girl comes in there and dances and he gets turned on and he says something stupid like, whatever you want, I'll give to you. She says, I want this guy John killed. And then he's like, I don't want to do it. It's the wrong thing to do. But I said it in front of all these people. See what he's doing? Who's in charge here? Like power is so important to this man. Power is so important that he's willing to kill an innocent man in order to save face in front of his lackeys, in order to please his wife. Probably there's a little bit in there too of like, I'm interested in this guy, but it's pretty irritating how he goes around saying that I shouldn't have married my sister-in-law all the time. There's probably a little, he made this promise to his, uh, to his stepdaughter, who he's kind of into now. He's, this is not a man above incest. He's kind of into now, and he's got to keep that to her. So in order to keep his power, he's got to do something that he knows is wrong in order to save the status quo that he's built up. But what's happened here? Who's really in charge? You know who's in charge? This teenage girl. That's who's in charge. He, he sells himself out for power, but that will never pay out. More on that in just a second. This is the way our life is like too. Sex, power, money. That's the, that's the great idol of every age. It's the great idol of our age. Look, in many ways, those three weird, great prophets of the 20th century, Nietzsche, Marx, and Freud were right. Nietzsche says it's all about power. There's no good or evil. There's only power. And those too weak to seek it. Lord Voldemort, you know, you know where that comes from. Nietzsche says there's nothing but power. Freud says there's nothing but sex. Like from the time you're an infant, your sexual desires are being shaped and molded by your family circumstances so that everything can be boiled, for Freud, everything can be boiled down to sex. For Marx, there's nothing but money, right? Everything is socioeconomic class struggle. And in the end, the proletariat's gonna win because all of life is about capital. It's all, all of life is about money. All three of these guys, very right. They actually have pinpointed the three idols. Both, all three of those guys too, very, very atheist. Like in a world without God, that's all you have is sex, money, and power. That's all there is. Voldemort's right. Sex, money, and power, that's all that exists in the world. That's the world that we live in now. And John the Baptist, the innocent one, the prophet who did nothing wrong except for just say you shouldn't be marrying your sister-in-law, he gets offed as a sacrifice to the gods, sex, money, and power. 
This is the way the world works then. It's the way the world works now. It's the way the world will always work until the great three beasts in Revelation are overthrown by King Jesus. The beast of power, the beast of economics, and the beast of sex. But let me just, before we move transition on to good stuff, let me, I've always got to be careful here because I don't want anybody to hear, any, anybody here to say that I'm saying that money is bad or that sex is bad or that power is bad. Money and sex and power are beautiful and amazing and wonderful gifts. And you should enjoy them the way that God wants you to enjoy them, which basically means using them as acts of service to serve each other. See, what happens here is so Nietzsche and Freud and Marx are all right, right? So, so you have property here. And, um, you know, Marx says, Marx degenerates property down into money, which is a tool that you use to serve yourself and to manipulate and control other people. There's relationship. Freud degenerates that down into sex as a tool that you use to serve yourself and to manipulate other people. What's the last one? You got property, you got money, you got responsibility. We have responsibility to each other to love and take care of each other. And Nietzsche takes that and boils that down to power. Power is what we take responsibility and adulterate it so that we control each other. I want to be in charge. I want you to do what I want to do. This is the name of the game in parenting, in marriage, in friend relationship, in church life, in business life, wherever you're at, this is the name of the game. That's where we're at. So what's the way out? The story ends with John the Baptist getting killed. That doesn't seem too hopeful. Two things here. Can I point you to two ways that the gospel is lurking in and through and behind the story? Two ways. First of all, you can't tell from the reading but this is a frame story. So for those of you who haven't been with us the past few weeks, Mark loves telling frame stories. He does, we've, we've looked at uh, three so far. This is the fourth one we've looked at in Mark. A frame story is a story where you start off the story, it begins, then the story gets cut off in the middle, and then story number two comes in. It's a separate story. And then when story number two is done, story number one circles back and finishes. So you have the beginning of a story, and then a whole story, and then story, the first story finishes. It's like a sandwich, right? With the bread being story one and the meat being story two. And in this story, the meat is John the Baptist's death. But do you know what? It's not in your bulletin. You have to look in the Bible to find this. You know what the sandwich is? You know what story one is? It's the story of the sending out of the disciples that we talked about last week. So the verse right before this, our text is this. So the disciples went out and proclaimed that people should repent, and they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. So Jesus empowers these people and sends them out on missions of justice and mercy and love. Healing people, repairing relationship, preaching the gospel, the good news of repentance and salvation. John the Baptist gets killed brutally, mercilessly, our story today. And when this story is, second slice of bread, very next line after, after you're reading here, the apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. Okay, so why does Mark do that? Why does he do frame stories? Because the stories interpret each other. Here's what Mark wants you to know. In the middle, you have this story of um, the, the, the political or the cultural system fueled by the great idols, sex, money, and power, crushing the innocent and righteous ones. And that looks hopeless. And a lot of you feel like that. Like I talked to some of you times, you're like, oh, we're just like, church is getting smaller and we're pitiful and Christians are lousy and the church is shrinking and stuff like that. But what Jesus, what Mark wants you to know is like bracketed this is powerful success. The mission is, John is dying in our story, but also the disciples are going out and they're on mission. In fact, um, you can't see this, but it says, verse 30 says the apostles, this is the only time in the gospel of Mark where the word apostles is used. Every other time it's disciples. Here it's apostles. Why is it apostles? Because apostles are the sent out ones. 
the ones who are on mission, the ones that Jesus has commissioned and empowered to introduce righteousness and justice and peace and mercy into the world. And so while things are going on, so while the system that's powered by sex money and um, uh, sex money and power is attempting to crush the righteous, the kingdom of Jesus still wins, always wins, never fails. You can't kill him fast enough. Like Herod can get rid of John, but he can't get rid of Jesus. More on that in just a second. In fact, by the way, um, it's, not just that Jesus, it's not just that the mission wins. It's not just you can kill John, but here's 70 more disciples out there doing this. It's not just that the mission wins. It's that those, those idolatrous, those three idols don't pay out. You give your life to them. You buy into them. And then they don't give you what you're going to promise. Like since the sexual revolution, since the 60s, we like have thought like sex is going to make us happy. And it doesn't. We all think that money is going to make us happy. It doesn't. We all think that if we're in charge, it's going to make us happy. And it never does. Let me tell you a little bit more about our friend Antipas. Antipas uh, divorced his wife to marry, you know, his uh, niece slash sister-in-law. Uh, but believe it or not, his father-in-law did not like that. His father-in-law was the king of uh, uh, Nabatea, which was a kingdom just east of where they were at. His father-in-law raises an army and comes and blows, um, blows Antipas up. Cost him a ton of money, a ton of property, a ton of face in front of his, uh, in front of his uh, friends and his peers. At the same time, I'll tell you about uh, why, he's not called, why he's not really a king. Um, Caesar Augustus knew that Herod had killed off all of his smart sons and left his dumb sons to live and be in charge. And so Caesar Augustus, when Herod dies, says, you all can't be king. I'll let you be tetrarch, which is a fancy word for ruler of a fourth area, but you can't be king. That really ticked uh, Antipas off, and he was like, but I want to be king. And Augustus kept on saying no. Finally, Augustus dies. Antipas is attacked by, attacked by his ex-father-in-law, the king of Nabatea, and his wife Herodias says, you know what would make this better? If you were really, really, truly king. At the same time, his nephew, Antipas's nephew, Agrippa, comes in charge down in Judea, and Tiberius Caesar says, okay, good, you get to be king. You get to be king. And, and uh, um, Antipas is like, what about me, what about me? And uh, Tiberius says, no, not you, not you. So finally, he goes and he meets with the emperor. He, his Herodias talks Antipas into going and saying, you've got to go and you've got to ask him face to face if you can be the king of Galilee. So he goes, and uh, by that time it's Caligula. And Caligula, some of you know Caligula's, Caligula's name. Caligula looks at him and says, you know what, no, you're not the king, you'll never be the king. I'm glad you're here, though, because I've been meaning to do this. I don't want you going back to Judea. In fact, you're exiled up into Gaul, out in the boonies. Go, don't come back. And he and Herodias get sent out in exile. Here's what I'm saying. Herod Antipas lives his life for power, and in the end, it's all taken away from him. You can never have enough. You can feed that beast and feed that beast, but there's always somebody more powerful than you. It could be the four-year-old girl living in your house. It could be your boss. It could be the next door neighbor. It could be the cops. It could be the political party you didn't vote for. Somebody's always going to be power, more, more powerful than you. So all that power play gets him nothing. He's banished to Gaul. Meanwhile, the apostles' mission grows and grows. And whereas the Herod line ends in AD 70 with the destruction of uh, Judea, here you are, a lot of you, here you are, worshiping King Jesus, the king that John the Baptist introduced the world to 2,000 years later and halfway across the world. The kingdom of God always wins, however powerful the political system be. And if you, it looks, and if you just read this story, it looks like it's pretty powerful. It isn't. It's fighting for something it can never have. 
It's fighting for a power it can never get. It's looking for a pleasure it can never have. It's looking for money it will never receive. That's the first thing. The kingdom of God can't be stopped. Here's the second thing. The second thing is this. This story is actually about Jesus. Right? I mean, John the Baptist is already dead by Mark 6. This is a flashback. Right? What kicks this story off is in verse 14. Herod hears it, for Jesus' name had become known. And some said John the Baptist had been raised from the dead. And Herod freaks out because he's convinced that this guy I offed, whose head I saw sitting on that platter, has somehow come back from the dead. Herod is convinced that Jesus is his worst nightmare come back to haunt him. Herod knows that you can't kill these people. This story is about Jesus. In Jesus, Herod is scared to death that the things that he's done wrong are coming back. And in fact, this, is, this story is about the death of Jesus. Herod would like to kill Jesus like he, like, he, like he killed John. In fact, by the way, a bonus material here. Later on in the Gospels, people are going to come to Jesus and say, do you think, what, what do you think about divorce? That's not just a theological question. That's try, them trying to pull Jesus into the trap that God, John the Baptist, killed. That's why Jesus says, man, your hearts are hard. He's not like, that's a dumb question. It's not a dumb question. You know, what do you think about divorce? That's an honest question, right? But what, Jesus knows what they're doing. You're trying to get me set up. You're trying to get me John the Baptisted. This, this is what's going on. This story is about when Jesus finally got John the Baptisted. Look, um, John is handed over. John the Baptist is handed over to Herod. That's what Mark uh, chapter 1 says. So is Jesus. In Mark chapter 14, Jesus is handed over to Pilate. John, in this story, John the Baptist is executed reluctantly by a king who doesn't want to execute him because he knows it's the wrong thing to do, but he's been pushed politically into a corner where he feels like, I have no choice to do it or I'll lose face. It's the exact, thing, exact same thing that happens to Jesus. But Pilate does not want to kill Jesus. He thinks it's the wrong thing to do, but he's been nip, manipulated and pushed into a corner where he has no choice but to do it or to lose face. Interesting parallel. This is an interesting conversation that John, that Jesus, you guys remember this? Jesus and Pilate have in John 19 and 20. It's all about political power. They're sitting there in Pilate's office and Pilate's like, hey, hey man, I can kill you. You know that, right? Like I have the power to kill you. And Jesus is like, actually, you're really not in charge here. You know that, right? And Pilate's like, no, I really am in charge here. And, and Jesus says, no, you don't have any power at all except if somebody else gave it to you. At the end of the story, who's got the power? Does Herod, does Herod have the power? No. Teenage girl dancing in front of him. That's who's got the power. Does Pilate have power? No. He just does whatever. These people that Caesar said, go to Judea and, and crush them. Put them under your heel. Let them know who's in charge. That's the people who runs Pilate. That's the way that power works. It happened to John the Baptist. It happens to Jesus. Herodias seizes an opportunity in verse 21. Do you see that? An opportunity came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet. It's the exact same language that's used about Pont that's, that's used about Judas Iscariot in Mark chapter 14, verse 11. Judas sought an opportunity to betray Jesus. This story is about Jesus. You know it from reading the Gospels. Herod himself knows it because when he hears about Jesus, he knows my worst nightmares come back to haunt me. He knows that you can cut John the Baptist's head off, but it's too late because he's already baptized Jesus. And maybe you can get to Jesus, you can cut Jesus' head off, but it's too late because he already sent the 70 out on mission. And it doesn't matter anyway because he's just going to rise from the dead. And the 70 are just going to rise from the dead. And Herod's going to rise from the dead. And you just can't kill these people. It's like a video game where you're trying to kill the enemies who are spawning. And the faster you kill them, the more they spawn. That's what Herod's up against. 
Because that's what the kingdom of God does. It multiplies. It's like the famous phrase that Kierkegaard said, when a tyrant dies, his rule ends. When a martyr dies, his rule begins. It's exactly what's happening with John the Baptist. And so in Psalm chapter two, which is right at the heart of this, where the kings of the earth and the rulers gather together and take counsel against the Lord and against his Messiah and say, let us cast his bonds from us and let us throw off his yoke. God comes in and he laughs and he holds them in derision and says, as for me, I've set my king. I've set my king Jesus on Zion, my holy hill, and his reign will be forever and ever. Amen. Let's stand and pray and we'll have communion. Let's pray. Father, thank you for being the great and powerful God. We, guys, it's easy for me to read a story like this and be like, oh man, Herod, he's such a sucker. He thinks that he's in charge and he's really not. But God, how much do I need your forgiveness for believing that power is going to make me happy? How much do I need you to reorient my mind from thinking that sex can actually be my God and make me happy or that money can actually be my God and make me happy? God, forgive me for believing, forgive me for ruining those three gifts. Forgive me for hurting my marriage and for hurting my family and for my hurting my friends by buying into the power and the sex and the money are going to make me happy. Forgive me. Help me not to manipulate. Help me to give these gifts back to you in praise. God, help St. James Lutheran Church to be a place where the community knows that we give up power, that we serve, that we believe in relationship, that we believe in responsibility that we believe in protecting each other and in loving each other. Lord, in your mercy. Father, we praise and thank you so much for Molly Fry and for the waters of baptism which you poured on her this morning. Bless her, Father. Raise her up in the faith. Be with Jared and Annie and with the kids and with the grandparents and everybody who's, all of us who are a part of her life. Uh, bless us with this opportunity of seeing her grow up in faith. I also want to thank and praise you this morning for the birth of Christine Daniel to Corey and Kaylee this week, a healthy birth. And just be with her, Father, bring her safely to the waters of baptism. May there never be a day when these children don't know that you are their Father and that you love them unconditionally, no questions asked in Jesus Christ. Lord, in your mercy. Father, be with our um, event after this, the uh, VBS Fun Day. May it bring honor and glory to you. May the time that we spend together, may it not just be enjoyable, but may it be an experience of your Holy Spirit working out the gifts of your body amongst us. May those people from the community who come and spend time with us, may, see, may they see your love and your righteousness and justice in our lives together. Lord, in your mercy. Father, we can only pray these things because you sent your son to shed his blood, to cover up our sins and to heal us from our brokenness. And more than that, to bring us into your throne room and call us your daughters and your sons. And so we pray this prayer as your children in the name of our brother Jesus. Amen. If you can, confess your faith with the words of the Nicene Creed. It's found in your bulletin. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of his Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. 
He suffered and was buried. And the third day He rose again, according to the Scriptures, and ascended into heaven, and sits at the right hand of the Father. And He will come again with glory to judge both the living and the dead, whose kingdom will have no end. And I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and Giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets. And I believe in one holy Christian and apostolic church. I acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins. And I look for the resurrection of the dead in the life of the world to come. Amen. Now let's pray together in Jesus' name. The prayer that He taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be Thy name. Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For Thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Our Lord Jesus Christ, on the night when He was betrayed, took bread. And when He had given thanks, He broke it and gave it to His disciples and said, Take, eat. This is My body given for you. Do this in remembrance of Me. In the same way, He took the cup after supper. And when He had given thanks, He gave it to them saying, Drink of it, all of you. This cup is the new covenant in My blood shed for you for the forgiveness of all your sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of Me. The peace of the Lord be with you always. Amen. You may be seated. Really? 
now may this true body and blood of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ strengthen you and preserve you and keep you in the one true faith to life everlasting. Depart in Christ's peace. Amen. Lord, now let your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared before the face of all people, to be a light to lighten the Gentiles and to be the glory of your people Israel. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen. and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace. Hey, head downstairs because there's food. Uh, Go in peace.